Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today we're going to be talking about endometriosis, a condition that affects an estimated one in 10 women. I, I feel like we're not treated as the vulnerable patients that we are. We're treated like hysterical drama queens and we no more want to be in the doctors. We don't want to be going to A&E screaming, crying, looking for something just to take the edge off. That was Amy Brown there and we'll hear more from her later on. Now, a couple of stories caught our eye this week and two of them relate to women in politics. We've had the shock news today that Jacinda Ardern has, as she says, no more in the tank and does not want to continue to lead her country. The New Zealand Prime Minister said she would step down no later than early February and not seek re-election. She was at a news conference when she said this and she was holding back tears. She said it had been a tough five and a half years as Prime Minister and she was only human and she needed to step aside. This summer I had hoped to find a way to prepare for not just another year but for another term because that is what a year require, this year requires. I have not been able to do that, the 42-year-old told the conference. She said, I know there will be much discussion in the aftermath of this decision as to what the so-called real reason was. The only interesting angle you will find is that after going on six years of some big challenges that I am human, she said. Politicians are human. We give all we can for as long as we can. And then it's time. And for me, it's time. Well, we're very sad to hear that because she was the youngest woman, I think, head of government when she was elected prime minister in 2017 at the age of 37. She led New Zealand through the COVID-19 pandemic and a series of disasters, including the terrorist attack on two mosques in Christchurch and the White Island volcanic eruption. She also said that it had been the most fulfilling five and a half years of her life, but it had its challenges. Among an agenda focused on housing, child poverty and climate change, we encountered a domestic terror event, a major natural disaster, a global pandemic and an economic crisis. When she was asked how she would like New Zealand's to remember her leadership, Ardern said, as someone who always tried to be kind. She thanked her partner, Clark Gayford, and her daughter, Neve, who she gave birth to while holding office. And she said they were the ones that have sacrificed the most out of all of us. To Neve, she said, Mum is looking forward to being there when you start school this year. And to Clark, let's finally get married. So that's the news from Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. And I'm sure it's going to provoke a lot of conversations about whether family life and politics are compatible. A lot of men seem to not care about... um that and carry on. But, you know, it's not just an issue for women. But it is interesting that she has said something out loud, which I suppose many people just push through from. And it actually links into another story that we're um, 
looking at today, which is that Social Democrats TD Holly Kearns has said she was left absolutely terrified when a persistent online stalker began to show up at her home. She also said she might never have run for election had she known the level of abuse that she would face in the course of her job. She told the group chat podcast from Virgin Media News, if I knew what I was getting myself into, no, I would not have done it. Am I glad I didn't know? 100% because I don't regret it. But honestly, had I known, probably no, I wouldn't have done it. And this comes in the wake of uh, Brilliant Irish Times reporting by Jennifer Bray last week, which revealed the scale of abuse faced by women in politics, with five representatives describing the threats and fear that they lived through. So women in politics very much in the news this week with Jacinda Ardern deciding to leave for the reason being that she just had enough, it sounds like. And also Holly Kearns talking about how difficult and challenging um, being a woman in politics is. But on to another woman. The oldest woman in the world died in a nursing home on the Mediterranean coast in the early hours of Tuesday morning, just a few weeks before her 119th birthday. Sour André who was born Lucille Radon on February the 11th, 1904, in the southern French town of Alais, went to Mass every morning and enjoyed chocolate and a glass of port for her afternoon gooser. And she sometimes apparently wondered why God hadn't taken her and had God forgotten to take her. But she also, every day, always asked what was for lunch. So she's a woman after my own heart. And we um, just wanted to mark the passing of... Sour André, who is a nun in France and who has died aged 118. Now, as many of you will know, endometriosis is a condition where cells that behave similarly to those that lie in the uterus are found outside the womb. Now, these can be in locations as disparate as the bowel and the nasal cavity, and the condition presents differently in women and can range from the mild to the severe It's estimated one in 10 women suffer from endometriosis, but given the lack of awareness around it, it's likely the number is actually much higher. So we wanted to talk about it on the Women's Podcast because it's one of those conditions where women in many cases have not been listened to by their medical professionals and have been gaslighted with the result that many women have suffered unnecessarily. There can be a broad range of symptoms depending on where the cells are, but typically we're talking about painful periods, chronic pelvic pain, pain during and after sex, painful bowel movements, fatigue, and it goes on and on. And for some women, the pain can be so unrelenting that it completely limits their quality of life. Amy Brown, who's coming on the podcast today, is one of those women. Her symptoms include all of those, the chronic pelvic pain, the neuropathic pain, sciatica, constipation, nausea, vomiting, headaches and fatigue. And she says she's lost everything to the condition of budding career, friendships and family relations. Last year, Amy became the first person in Ireland to be given a ministerial license for legal cannabis use to treat endometriosis. And she talks to us about what a relief it has been to get that license and also how cannabis has helped her in in her pain. And also on the podcast today is another woman who's lived with endometriosis, Kathleen King, a medical scientist and brilliant advocate for women in this area. So we began with Kathleen, who gave us a definition of endometriosis. So endometriosis is a chronic inflammatory condition that affects um, one in 10 women and persons um, assigned female at birth. And it's characterized by um, severe pain. And most often we associate this pain with um, menstruation, with mid-cycle around ovulation. But for a lot of people, the pain is persistent throughout the month. 
And the other main symptoms that you would find with endometriosis are painful sex, um, you know, bowel disturbances, so um, pain when, when um, passing a bowel movement, sometimes bleeding, um, difficult urination, painful urination, blood in the urine. Um, some women as well will experience um, shoulder tip pain um, and maybe chest pain as well too, depending on where the endometriosis is. And I suppose one of the other major symptoms um, or, you know, associated things with endometriosis is infertility. And we know that endometriosis is one of the leading causes of infertility. And while not every patient who has endometriosis will be infertile, we know that there's a very complex relationship there. And unfortunately, it's not truly understood. Um, but again, endometriosis, it's one of those things where you can have little or no symptoms right up to very severe debilitating um, symptoms that, you know, leave you on very, very strong medication, like very strong opioids and unable to function. Um, and then we've got, you know, the opposite. We've got patients who are um, identified as having endometriosis through an incidental surgery for something else um, and may not have had any symptoms their whole life. So it's quite a complex disease, um, very misunderstood and very poorly understood as well, too, in terms of research and, and medical information. That was Kathleen King there to kick off this episode. And we're going to hear more from her later. But first, I asked Amy Brown to tell me how she was doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain at the moment. Um, I had a surgery three weeks ago on Tuesday. So I'm still kind of in the very early stages of recovery and healing. So, yeah, I'm in quite a lot of pain, but hopeful that, you know, the surgery was a success. And hopefully that going forward, you know, there'd be more pain free days or more low pain days, should we say. But at the moment, it's it's very difficult. It is. Yeah. So I had quite an extensive surgery. So the endometriosis had infiltrated my diaphragm. Uh, the entire diaphragm wall was infiltrated 30 by 50 millimetres. So it was it was quite extensive. And so they had to cut all that out and then do quite a lot of work on the nerves in my back, the sciatic nerve, the pedendal nerve and that kind of stuff. So it, it was quite an extensive operation and I can't tolerate the neurological medication that would normally battle that pain. And so it means coping with quite a lot of physical pain. Yeah, I'm just going to quote you here, Amy, uh, because I think it's quite powerful. You've said nobody understood how badly I was suffering because endo is an invisible illness. If they could physically see the barbed wire I felt was strangling my organs, the piping hot knives I felt ripping through my pelvis, the elephant I felt was constantly sitting on my lower back and chest. Maybe then they could begin to understand the depth of it all. I think that kind of really viscerally sums up the experience. But going back to being a child and your first experiences, when would you have first been aware that something was happening to you or that you were having a condition that nobody really understood what was going on? Well, I suppose the the real trouble began when I got my first period when I was 11. And I was telling my story for a long time, stating that that was when all everything started. But when I got my notes under the Freedom of Information Act from the hospital, I realised that I'd actually been hospitalised three times between the age of eight and 11. So before I'd even got my first period, I was suffering symptoms. So it would have been like pelvic pain, uh, recurring kidney and UTI infections, um, the nausea and fainting. Just I don't know why that's constantly part of my life. And so, yeah, I was hospitalised three times before getting my period, but never made a connection until like in the last few years when I got the notes. 
But my mum brought me to the GP when I was 11. Within like two or three months of getting my first period, it was insane. Like she had to put plastic sheets on my bed. Like we, I had to, there was five and six pads at a time on my underwear. I was constantly bleeding through my clothes in school. It was just absolutely awful. And so they just kept saying I was very unfortunate that some people are just like this. Some people just have very heavy periods. Maybe the pain wasn't as bad as I thought. And maybe I was being a little bit dramatic. It was all in my head, this kind of stuff. So for 10 years, I was a hormonal guinea pig. And I was just put on all different kinds of pills, injections. I had the UV ring. I had four marina coils. I had the bar. Like I had everything that you could imagine to try and mitigate these crazy, insane, heavily and painful periods. But nothing ever worked. And, and Amy, we, I think we can call it um, medical gaslighting. Would you would you say that's what it was? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I would actually say that it, the gaslighting got worse after my diagnosis. Because we knew what was wrong, but we still didn't believe that I could possibly be in this amount of pain. And when you were 21, you were diagnosed. Is that right? Tell me about that. Because that's that's 10 years of this not knowing and this debilitating, you know, not being able to have a normal childhood, I imagine. Yeah, no, it wasn't a normal childhood at all. And then when you mix in all the different hormonal medications that I was put on, like my mind wasn't my own. How any child is supposed to cope with that? I mean, like there's women that I deal with now in their 30s and 40s who are on their knees and absolutely falling apart on these different medications. And I've no idea how an 11, 12, 13 year old child was supposed to cope with that. Like they kept saying that I was out of control. My behavior was, was out of control and my temper was out of control. And no wonder, like, you know, I just, I feel so sorry for teenage me thinking back. But when I got the diagnosis, I was just so pleased that I wasn't crazy. It wasn't all in my head. Like I had a name of something to put to the suffering, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't ask questions even. I He just told me that he had scraped away spots of endometriosis and that he was going to refer me to a specialist. And I thought, this is amazing. I'm not mad. And that was it. I went off about my business and it was three years later when I saw the specialist. And it was only then when she explained to me that that was like having asthma and no inhalers. She was like, this is a chronic condition that needs treatment. And I had been on no hormones for the three years I was waiting. So that started the rigmarole again. More pills, more coils, more, just more experimenting on stuff that I'd already tried that didn't work. Do you know? So it was just a nightmare. And I ended up then having two more surgeries with that specialist team. So I had one in 2013. I had one in December 2016. And then my third one was July 2018 and I had to go on disability allowance, leave my job. I had to move two hours away from everything that I knew and loved because I couldn't afford to live in Dublin anymore. It was absolutely horrific. I was bed bound for nearly 18 months after that surgery and I couldn't get a post-op appointment for eight whole months. I cried every day on the phone trying to get an appointment because I knew something wasn't right like And it wasn't until the following March when I got that appointment and I asked them, I pleaded with them to take the coil out there. And then they'd put a fourth coil in during that surgery when like if the first three didn't work, what, why we, what were you hoping for with the fourth one? Like, you know, 
So I knew it was aggravating me, something terrible. And it was really, like, I couldn't even stand up. And so they removed that. And so it was instant relief on some level, having that gone. But there was still quite a lot of pain. And that was when they refused me the referral I asked for to go to Romania. So it was a very traumatic experience. I was hysterical, refusing to leave the hospital until I saw the consultant because I felt that she was the only one that could really understand what was going on. But it was only the some of the junior members of the team and it was those who told me I wasn't entitled to the referral, that they've done everything they can do surgically and hormonally, that all I can do now is wait for pain management and that they were going to do the exact same thing in Romania that I've already had here. And so, no, I couldn't get the referral. But it turned out upon complaint and a meeting, I got an apology saying that I was actually, in fact, entitled to that referral. And I said, well, an apology is not much use to me because I was 10 grand in debt at that point after going to Romania by myself on on my own back. So if they'd given me the referral, I would have been entitled to apply for the treatment abroad scheme, which would have covered pretty much everything. So like even that trauma, you know, I knew what I needed. I knew what I needed to do and I was still blocked. So it was heartbreaking. But anyway, I went and I had the fourth operation in Romania and it completely changed my life. They removed deep infiltrating disease from the same areas that the specialist here had claimed to do excision in. And also were able to remove it from my diaphragm at that time whereas here they told me a general surgeon would remove it which is wild misinformation like no general surgeon should ever touch endo no matter what organ it's on it should be an endo specialist and the, the specialist team in Ireland was telling me that a general surgeon was responsible for it like you couldn't make this stuff up no, Amy, you couldn't. And I, I just really, I, mean, I want to talk to you more about cannabis and about various other aspects of your of your story. But I want to bring you in, Kathleen, as a medical scientist and advocate. I mean, I know that there's many listeners who know a lot about endo, but there's also some who don't. And I'm sure listening, as I have to, to Amy, it's absolutely infuriating to hear what you have gone through since that age, you know, and it seems to me completely unnecessary and wrong. And I just wondered, Kathleen, from your perspective, I know you've heard a lot of similar stories, but can you maybe put it in context and explain it to us? Because it just seems completely outrageous that women's health is so disregarded and unexplored and, and treated so wrongly. What What is going on? It is. And it's it's one of those things. And I always paraphrase Amy on this one. We're treated as unreliable witnesses to our own suffering. And that always sits really strongly with me. And I suppose I've been involved in advocacy now for well over 20 years and Amy's story is one of the classics. The delay in diagnosis, the gaslighting, the not being believed, um, the being pushed down the roots of various different ineffectual treatments and having again to seek surgery outside of the country for exporting our women's health problems again in Ireland. But the thing is, we're not unique with this in Ireland. It's like this worldwide. And that's what the infuriating part of this is. Um, If you think that one in 10 women And also, you know, people who are assigned female at birth can develop endometriosis. That's a huge number. We're talking about 200 million plus worldwide. Why isn't this a bigger deal? Why is this not being dealt with with the same level of severity as some other conditions? And I think a root of that lies a lot too with the fact that it was tied into menstruation for so long. It's tied into period pain, tied into shame, tied into this whole thing that we should be stoic, we should be you know, strong women and not admit that we've got pain and, you know, more or less like 
get on with it. Um, if you if you complain about your period pain while you're weak, and if you don't get up and do this while you know you're bleeding basically all over the place, like you're another weakling. And you know, I've seen that myself. I work in in, in the healthcare um, sector as well too, and I've seen that even when I was trying to get my own diagnosis that. Um, it was just assumed that you couldn't cope, that you were just, you know, a weakling or that, you know, pick up your lot and get on with it. Because if this is the way it's been for you or for your family or for anybody else, that's just the way it is. And, you know, like Amy, I spent nine years trying to get a diagnosis. I knew at 14 um, the word endometriosis and I took this to my GP and basically got laughed out of it. Um, it took until I was a trainee medical scientist in um, in the hospital where I work now, um, that I could actually afford a private consultation in Northern Ireland. And that is the only way I got diagnosed. And my letter that was sent in there had said at the very bottom line was, I'm very happy that there's nothing wrong with this patient, but she's insistent on a referral. And that's the way we treat women. We don't believe them. We don't believe their level of pain. We don't believe their level of suffering. And we don't believe that something as common as endometriosis can be so debilitating. And again, too, I think, you know, to move the narrative on on endometriosis, we probably do need to separate it from the menstruation and from the menstrual side. It's a whole body disease. You know, you've got people who suffer very severe chronic fatigue with it. You've got the nausea, the vomiting. You've got the gastrointestinal symptoms. You've got thoracic symptoms as well, too. But it also leads us to other risks as well, such as higher risk of um, cardiovascular disease and some higher risks in um, cancers and autoimmunity. Now, they're not massive risks, but that extra risk is there. And these are things, again, that medical professionals would need to be aware of in people with endometriosis. Kathleen, how far are we moving um, to a place where this is treated, like you said, like another condition and people are aware of it and we understand it? When is this medical gaslighting going to stop? When are women going to start being listened to? Do you see changes as someone who's in the medical community? I do see changes. I think when... Um, certainly looking for my own diagnosis and guiding people through that process, um, you know, back in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, it was it was difficult. Um, women weren't comfortable speaking about their bodies. They weren't comfortable speaking about their symptoms. They found it very difficult to approach medical professionals. And again, at that stage, they found that there was nearly a bias towards, you know, male professionals because they give you the benefit of the doubt. You didn't have a woman sitting in front of you judging, going, I've never had painful periods like that. So that, you know, or I've had cramps, so you couldn't possibly be suffering. And we have seen that shift. Now it's very, very slow. But I think in the last number of years, the explosion in social media and where women are, you know, able to speak on their own platform and, you know, use examples from their own lives, um, you know, to help educate others, but also to, to reinforce the information that's out there. Now with that also comes the rise of misinformation. And that's a huge bugbear of mine. As we know, the information on the internet is not always reliable. And this is where, again, too, you need to have the fine balance of, you know, raising awareness, but also raising awareness accurately. But I do think in the last number of years, I think, um, you know, people have become a lot more confident in speaking about their bodies. They've become a lot more confident in their um, ability to deal with the healthcare professionals. But we're dealing with a very antiquated system. And when we look at the delays to diagnosis, there's a lot of complex factors. And some of it is that us as individuals, we don't recognize that something's wrong. You know, we may not know that that chronic fatigue or those bowel symptoms that happen every month or that horrendous pain or bleeding is actually abnormal. And unless we talk about that as women, we're not really going to know, you know, that that is a situation. 
the other side of it then is, is the education of healthcare professionals. Um, you know, I know when I've spoken to GPs in the past that they feel that it's very hard to differentiate endometriosis from all the other things that they're expected to, to diagnose and manage. And that's understandable. So we always sort of try and give them tips and red flags. So if you have a young woman in front of you and she's complaining of, you know, painful sex, she's complaining of severe period pain, she's complaining that she missed her sister's wedding last month because she was lying on the floor passed out. You know, those are sort of red flags that we want people to sort of pick up and listen to. And then when you get to the referral stage, when you do have a referral into the healthcare system here, the delays are absolutely crazy. Now, we all know that. We all know in every part of the health service at the minute, the delays are, are you know, outstanding. Um, in gynecology, it's usually one of the first areas where surgeries are cancelled or postponed or pushed back. And even the, the couple of endometriosis centres that we have in Ireland at the moment, they're only dealing with a handful of patients in theatre every week. So they're constrained by the system they have here. That in turn, you know, can lead to like a lot of pain and suffering, like, you know, not just for the patients, but like their surroundings, their family, their friends, you know, their work, everything suffers as a result of that. When you look then as well to at the level and the quality um, of treatment that's available, endometriosis has been very under-researched. It's been very underfunded. It's just... Basically, if you think women's health is bad, endometriosis is like the ground floor. Like nobody has really, really looked about it. Um, it's been a case of castrate you with drugs or castrate you, you know, surgically to get the ovaries, you'll be grand to get the uterus, you don't need it. And we now know that that's not the case. You know, endometriosis doesn't come from the uterus. We're born with the lesions in place. They react very similarly to the hormones, but they're, it's not identical um, so pushing women into hysterectomies, pushing women into pregnancies, pushing women into these barbaric menopausal and hormonal treatments, it's absolutely crazy. And that's not to say there's a rule for any and all of the treatments that are available, but we need to look at a longer term solution. And we're seeing anecdotally from a lot of patients that excision surgery is what's given the best and long term benefits. Now, the research still has to catch up on this. There are some papers out there, but again, and the guidelines can't reflect you know, that unless the evidence is there, unfortunately. Some studies are coming through. Um, we're finding, though, that patients who've had excision go on to lead a better quality of life. And we find that the surgeons who are using excision, who are very, very deeply invested in endometriosis, are very keen to help educate and support others in that journey as well. So we're hoping that at some stage, you know, you will have an endometriosis centre within this country that you can refer women to when they're at a complex stage or where their pain is not manageable or where they require that multidisciplinary care. Um, something like Amy has had there where she's had thoracic, she's had bowel, maybe bladder and all of that as well too, that you've got every specialist in the room. And again, instead of having to put people into huge debts, traveling to the US, traveling to Dubai, Romania, the UK, you know, we've had people travel all over the world for surgery. Amy, I just want to come back to you. Thank you very much, Kathleen, for that, for being so articulate and explaining all the different issues. Uh, tell me about your experience with cannabis, Amy, because that was a bit of a game changer for you as well, wasn't it? But obviously yeah. illegally at the time. T tell us yeah. how, how that went. What was the first time that you came across it? Uh, I actually began consuming when I was 15 and had no idea of the medical benefits of it. I just assumed at that point that everybody felt better when they consumed cannabis. And like when I think of it now, gee, like being that young and being so sure of myself, like I, 
I explain to my mom what it is, how much it costs. And when I think now, if if I had a 15 year old child come at me with all this information, I don't know what I'd do. Like, and I commend her for, there was a huge fallout. She didn't speak to me for months. Like she hated the, the idea of me consuming drugs, but I was so sure of myself. I, I carried on and it wasn't until my mid twenties when I actually made the connection the, when I draw the dots kind of from the medicinal value. And so it was as well because I didn't know about endometriosis. Yes, I was diagnosed when I was 21, but I didn't know what it meant or what it was or any of that stuff until much later. So then I started stumbling across the research, which showed that the THC component in the cannabis plant can actually reduce the inflammation around the lesions and the endometrial lesions themselves. So this was a research study done in Barcelona, which on mice first, which prompted the clinical trials then in the women with endometriosis in Spain. So that kind of fed my activism, I suppose, in saying, like, where's this magical barrier? Why is it okay in Spain, but it's not okay here? Like, why... Why are endo patients in Spain being entitled to treat themselves this way? But yet endo patients in Ireland risk a jail sentence. Didn't make any sense to me. So I I just carried on. I didn't allow the stigma or the rejection or the dismissal to stop me. And I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't stop until somebody listened to me. Yeah. And so you, you what happened as a result of your activism? So I suppose more people became aware of the the connection with endometriosis and cannabis. More people felt empowered to actually come out and speak about their own cannabis consumption. And then I suppose I had I finally got a pain consultant to hear to hear me out and to listen to me. The first one I had waited five years for the appointment for, he told me to emigrate if I wanted to use cannabis. And I said, that's fine for me, for one person. But what about the other one in 10 women with endo who could possibly benefit from this? Like, it makes no sense to have such a dismissive attitude. And he he said, look, if you want to have a surgical procedure, you have to try this medication first. So, like, again, it's just forcing this trial and error medications on patients having no regard for the side effects that they're causing. I can't even tell you how dangerous some of them were for me personally. Like Lyrica, within three days, I convinced myself that my mom and dad hated me. The world was better off without me and I was suicidal. To go from being a top advocate and being there for everybody and being so positive in my journey to absolutely having no hope at all within three days. That's how sensitive I am to those kind of neurological medications and like no there's no respect for our right to bodily autonomy if if we say no we don't want to try this particular medication it's as though the doctors are taking that personal and that we're attacking them personally or their ego when it's not the case at all it's not about them it's about the drug and I even had a GP go mad at me and a brand new GP who I went to counselling for three weeks before I actually met her because of the medical trauma and when I did see her and she saw the prescription that I was on, Plexia, she, her attitude completely changed. And she said to me, do you realise this is an end of life drug? <sighs> and I went, do you realise that I didn't write that prescription myself? I, I didn't put myself on that. So she carried on through going through the folder. I had everything, all my surgical notes, all everything so organised. 
And when she got to the part about the cannabis research, she slammed the folder shut and said, nobody will be getting any benzos or sleepers around here. And I fell back into the chair in in pure shock and I was shaking. I said, excuse me, I have never, ever been on benzos or sleepers in my whole life. That's one thing that I've never been prescribed. Why, why would you say that? Why would you jump to that conclusion? And she told me that I was offending her and that she, w- she wouldn't see me ever again as a patient. And this was a brand new GP that I'd met for the very first time who I had spent weeks going to counselling to prepare myself to meet. And that was her attitude. Like, I I can't tell you how awful it's been, like, the stigma, you know, meeting it, some of the reactions that I've been met with has been truly, like, torturous, if you ask me. Like, if your patient has gone in desperate for help and you're making them feel 10 times worse about themselves, I, ju- I just, it makes no sense to me. If if they say first do no harm, please remember your tone and the way you're speaking to somebody, like, that's I, I feel like we're not treated as the vulnerable patients that we are. We're treated like hysterical drama queens. And we no more want to be in the doctors. Like, we really don't. We don't want to be going to A&E, screaming, crying, looking for something just to take the edge off. So anyways, thankfully, when I got this new referral to a new pain consultant, his tone was very, very different. He was very open. He was willing to listen. And... He knew nothing about cannabis. He knew nothing about the medical cannabis access program or that you could even get it in Ireland. So I think he was so impressed by my knowledge of everything that that's why he was really willing to listen and give me a chance. So he we made an agreement that I would try his ways first. And if that didn't help, then he would apply for the ministerial license. So I think I had three procedures done. None of them helped. And so he stuck to his word and applied for the license, which it just, it meant everything to me. Like just to be treated as a reliable witness, you know, to my own suffering, that meant everything. Yeah. Uh, but you still have to, unlike other people, you have to import uh, the cannabis yourself and pay privately for it yourself. Is that right? That's Which correct, seems correct. unfair. So the medical cannabis access program is domestically provide like the medications are provided in Ireland domestically and it's covered under the medical card. But if you have a ministerial license, then you have to go the private route and yeah, it's imported from Amsterdam and the cost is on the pain on the patient to pay. And and Amy, you so that has helped you a lot to be able to have, you know, steady access to the cannabis. Absolutely. Like I don't have to worry about any black market contacts maybe running out of of cannabis or me being in the wrong place at the wrong time and getting shot because I'm trying to access my cannabis in an unsavory way like it's just it's changed everything for me like and I don't have to worry about the guards kicking my mom and dad's door in like there's so many levels to prohibition that has that makes life for an endo patient absolutely unbearable I have a friend who was brought to court and charged with cultivation for for growing a five centimetre hemp plant, one single hemp plant. She has endometriosis everywhere, all over her diaphragm as well. She's saving for excision abroad. She's a Polish national living in Ireland for 16 years. Like the language barrier alone would have added so much trauma to her experience. And I've lost sleep over this woman Honest to God, I've cried so many nights because I I can't help her. 
she keeps saying that I, I have helped her and that only for she found me, she'd be totally alone. And But I just felt so helpless in that. Like no, no patient, no woman should have to go through that. And just for people listening, what, what, um, how does the cannabis alleviate your symptoms or how does it make you feel and make your life better? So it alleviates the nausea. So I have constant nausea. I'm always sick and I have a very bad appetite. So I think without cannabis, I probably wouldn't eat at all. I have to like force feed myself because I know that I'm going to end up being sick or, you know, it's the psychological around the food and getting sick is really awful. So the cannabis definitely helps with that. It helps with neuropathic pain. It helps with inflammation. It helps with anxiety. I'm not actually holding myself with the pain. I'm able to relax. And then I suppose one of the main things I should mention is that even though it's cannabis floss is my prescription, that doesn't always do the trick. Sometimes I I need edibles, which will give a completely different form of relief, like if there's extreme pelvic pain, smoking or vaping is not really going to alleviate that very well, but the edibles will get to the root of the problem much quicker. And so I still do have to rely somewhat on the on the black or unregulated market, for want of a better word. So we do need to see the the products that are available widened and broadened to suit everybody. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Kathleen, I just want to bring you back in again. I mean, you mentioned that centre of excellence that you believe should be set up. Can we just maybe conclude by talking about what needs to happen and what else needs to happen? And and I suppose not just in terms of the centre of excellence, but just people's attitude, the the attitude in the medical community seriously sounds like it seriously needs to kind of wake up to a reality for women that has has been kind of disregarded and ignored for so long so what in terms of your advocacy what are you what are you working on at the moment I think you know the key to a lot of these things is education and like I do firmly believe that when people um, listen to individual stories um, we can change things and we know this from or the most recently I suppose the repeal um you know, campaign. And it was women's stories that changed that for a lot of people in this country. And we know when women speak, things do change. Um, And when they speak from the heart, you know, we have the power to move things along. 
at the moment, I am working on a program to bring um, endometriosis education to schools. And I'm hoping that we can have a pilot for that and bring that, you know, that level of education, you know, at school level, um, you know, for all, all attendees. It's a program that's been run in New Zealand very successfully. The other thing I would like to see, and I think it is happening in small amounts, is that there is an increase in education for GPs and healthcare professionals around endometriosis. Now, I've done a lot of talks on a very ad hoc basis. I've been invited in, but I do think a more structured, formal approach is needed for that. But I think, you know, certainly from a healthcare professional point of view, I think it needs to be disassociated a little bit from the paths that it's been forced down. So at the moment, if you present, you're going to be faced with two choices. You have the choice of your quality of life or you have the choice of fertility. Now, when you're 17 and you're being faced with that choice, it's usually highly inappropriate. When you're 27 being faced with that choice, it can still be very highly inappropriate. Um, I think we should get to a situation where we don't have to choose between um, fertility and between quality of life. And I think that the overprescription, you know, of pregnancy in this country needs to stop. I think it's very important to educate women the risks to their fertility with endometriosis, but not to scare them. We know that over 70% of women with endometriosis will conceive and with advances in IVF technology and also with the use of excision surgery, this percentage is bound to be higher. There's been no current, no recent research done on this. So again, too, we need to get this thinking that endometriosis is not just a routine gynae procedure. It's not something you can go in in 10 minutes and have a wee burn around with the ablation and take out the lesions that are there. It is a skilled and specialist surgery. You need to go in, you need to identify the lesions, first of all, which are very multifaceted. They don't look the same in every patient. They need to be meticulously removed, you know, um, and taken out, sent to the laboratory for confirmation. You also need then to have somebody who can actually work on the different organs because endometriosis can grow on absolutely any organ in the body. And this is something that we, you know, we know now from the literature as well as the case studies that are out there. Every organ in the body has been identified. And this takes a lot of skill to actually see that because if you somebody who is going to remove endometriosis from the pericardium, the sac around the heart, they're going to remove it from the lungs, the diaphragm, you need a thoracic specialist in there. If you have somebody going in working on the bladder, the ureters, you know, to preserve somebody's kidneys, again, you need somebody who's got urology experience in there. Like we've had women in this country who have lost their organs, you know, due to endometriosis and due to neglect. We have women who've lost their kidneys. Um, endometriosis on the kidney can be silent um, and it's too late by the time it's recognized. We've got women who've lost their uterus, their ovaries parts of their bowel, um, their appendix, a lot of things like that. And, and oftentimes, needlessly, if the disease had been caught earlier and treated earlier, it would have made a huge difference. It's happening right now. I've been overwhelmed with messages, particularly since getting the cannabis license and it going national. But one man messaged me and told me that his wife is currently in double kidney failure with endometriosis and that she's 38, I think. And he said that he met her when she was 19 and she's been consuming cannabis since the age of 19. And never, she never spoke to medical professionals about it because she was too afraid of the stigma. And she's now in double kidney failure with endometriosis. So it's, it's still happening. Like as we speak, 
there there are women going through this. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned repeal there, Kathleen. Do we we'd have to draw a line, don't we, between cervical cancer, between repeal, between anything to do with women's sexual or reproductive health or their bodies, and that are very particular to women, where there's just this sort of blindness. Um, we might call it willing blindness or unwilling or whatever it is, but it. It's kind of it's very distressing that we're still we still seem to be there. And and I know lots has happened and it's better. And people like Amy and yourself are talking about this and telling stories, which which is the huge game changer. But yeah, I I mean, as a a, a feminist issue, it's it's still massive. And I know it's not just this country and it's a worldwide problem. But um, yeah, just listening to you both, I'm just really struck by that, that this is this is a case of it's because it's women and women aren't seen or heard in the way that. I think men are. It's a hundred percent. The funny thing is, a small per isn't it? Some very tiny percentage of men can actually have endometriosis as well. So if it was more kind of even, though, I suppose there'd be a hell of a lot more research. Definitely, with the predominance of women, um, you know, being affected by endometriosis, it is it it, it is a gender imbalance um, and disease. Like in a, you know, as a result, then there's very little interest information research funding or anything like that there are a very very small number of cis men who do develop endometriosis usually post treatment for prostate cancer they're a very specific subset um, and it's not usually there from birth and again too because we don't understand it that much we don't really know what's going on but um, I suppose you know even in Ireland at the moment we have a couple of researchers looking into endometriosis and looking into earlier diagnosis and treatment so there is hope but I do think we need a movement behind us to bring this level of education to the public and we recently had screenings of Below the Belt and previously End of What in Ireland two very good documentaries which will be brought hopefully to uh, public access television like in the US and hopefully in Ireland in, in the coming years um, and I think that's the only way is to continue the conversation keep talking about it normalise this the same as diabetes or asthma which has a very similar instance in women so I think it's something that we just need to make it a, a thing that it's not stigmatised and that you know and I know, like, anytime I'm I'm speaking on anything, like, so you get the eye rolls. Oh, it's Kathleen talking about periods again. You know, we need to get away from Well, that. no eye rolls here. I'm going to give the final word to you, Amy, because it feels like this has dominated your life. I mean, since you were eight and you were first hospitalized, um, even though you were only diagnosed with 21. It is your life and your advocacy now. Your activism is, is a huge part of your life. Is that all that you're able to do? And are you able to have hold down a job or what? what else is going on for you? Yeah, so I, with the cost of living crisis this year, I had no choice but to, to return to part-time work. So I did start working part-time again in June, but I'm obviously out now for it's a minimum of six weeks after the surgery. But I'm in a year two of a bachelor's degree in social care work. And so I'm not hopeful that I'll ever really be able to work full-time in the sector but I would like to have the academic knowledge to be able to advocate for patients the way I already am, basically. But, you know, I'll be more educated and qualified to, to advocate, I suppose, when I finish the degree. So I suppose it's turning pain into power. And that's the only thing that can get me through it mentally. I'm I'm telling myself the universe gave me this for a reason and I need to do something. I'm supposed to do something with it. And I suppose that's the only thing that gets me through. And Kathleen. She'll pave the way and I'll be forever eternally grateful to her. What about a uh, response from you, Kathleen, to that uh, praise? Oh, look, I, look, I've said this to Amy before. Um, you know, I, I've burnt out a few times in my advocacy work and that's 
through to no fault but my own, responding to messages night, noon, in the morning, three and four in the morning. You could be still up chatting with somebody, but I'm always inspired and humbled by the experience of, of women and like Amy as well, where you meet them when they're a shell and they're absolutely broken by this condition. And then they're empowered by the knowledge, they're empowered by the information, and they just go forward and they blossom into these amazing advocates and amazing women that they are. And I just can't tell you, like, I feel like the Irish proud mommy, really, because, you know, I see like all these these women doing amazing work and it is fantastic. And I know that there's somebody out there who will listen to this, who will take their daughter to the doctors. They will get an earlier diagnosis. I have proof of this all the time. I get so many people come back and say, I've read an article. I've seen this. I've heard this radio interview. Um, and I pass that information on. And that's all we can ask for. If we can just get one person diagnosed a wee bit earlier, it's a win for me. Yeah, well, that's a lovely place to end it. And I just want to say on behalf of I know many of our listeners and on the women's podcast, thank you both for everything you're doing and have done over many, many years. And I'm so sorry that you've had to, that you have to do it. Um, but I'm so grateful that you're doing it on behalf of so many women who who otherwise wouldn't know about it and wouldn't be getting the help that they, they need. So I wish you both every success in everything you do as well. And come back and talk to me about periods anytime. And I'll never roll my eyes. So don't worry, I'm always here to, for any of that chat amy and kathleen thank you so much thank you thank you that was amy brown and kathleen king there and if you want to get in touch with us about anything you heard on the podcast you can email us the women's podcast at irishtimes.com or get in touch on social at it women's podcast the podcast is produced by aileen finnegan suzanne brennan and me roisin ingle with jj vernon on sound that's it from us mind yourselves and i'll talk to you next time Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.